Welcome back, podcast fans. I'm your host, Annette Hines, and this is Parenting Impossible, the special needs survival podcast. The last couple of weeks, I've been practicing my pause, and uh, I took two weeks off from producing the podcast. Uh, I needed to do that for lots of reasons, but um, had a couple of things scheduled with the law group that needed some attention. And uh, although I had continued to promote uh, the podcast and had continued to record some episodes, I, I just um, needed some time to get things together and do some editing and do um, some other things. So you had the um, pleasure of getting some pre-recorded stuff that we re-released. Hopefully you enjoyed it. They were oldies but goodies and um, I thought timeless episodes. So I hope you enjoyed our choices for for the recordings that we re-released. And, um, and I think the feedback was pretty good. So um, we did the same thing for our circle of care as well. And it was um, really great. So anyway, um, Things have been going haywire here. My God, if you have ever had one of those weeks where you had the highs and lows like you've never seen, let me tell you, this has been one for the record books. Our server at our office is down. Now, I know that everybody and their mother is, you know, putting all of their stuff in the cloud and last year we did that, but it didn't work out so well for us. We spent a ton of money um, and we never quite got the job finished with our IT person. Cost us so much. I, I can't even begin to tell you now. Could have been that we picked the wrong people to work with could have been that we just could not figure out how to use it. It's supposed to be easy peasy, um, but we could never quite get the hang of it. I mean, we are tiny. We're 10 people, you know, with a few added contractor people here and there. So we are tiny. We do not have a complicated system. We do not have complicated assets. We should be able to manage this very straightforward system without much ado. But for whatever reason, things were so hosed up and we just could not, um, we could not get all of our files in the right places. We could, I mean, this went on for so many months. Oh, you just could not believe it. It was insanity. Um, and we only had eight years of files, too. We're not talking about 30 years of files that we were trying to get in place. It was um, it was a disaster. So we instead, we had an old server that was really old um, that we had some files on, and we opted to buy a new server. So last year, we bought a brand new server, and we took everything down from the cloud. Ka-ching, ka-ching, more money. 
Um, and what we did was uh, early this year, we swapped out our IT professionals for a new group that we are really enjoying working with who are much more moderately priced and who are a bigger organization. And we are definitely, you know, for whatever reason, it's just a better fit for us. And that that seems to be working out really well. So then our server crashed. Uh, I don't know, there's a part that's gone wrong. I mean, this is our brand new server. Can't even begin to tell you how much I paid for it. It, it It's insane. I, I'm pulling my hair out. It's crazy. Should not have happened. Is it under warranty? I don't know. I'm going to find out. But, you know, now our new IT people are like, hey, you've got to be in the cloud. Everybody's in the cloud. If you were in the cloud, this wouldn't have happened. But, you know, I'm not going to make another transition back up to the cloud again because of everything that happened to us last year. It's it's not going to happen. So um, here we are. We are down. We can't get to our files. Everything is is insane. You know, we've got, of course, we've got contingency plans. We've got backup plans. We are moderately still working and able to get to a lot of our stuff, but it certainly is restricting our capacity and that is making us crazy. And then this morning (laughs) we come into work and not only are we still having difficulty with our server, but our big you know, workhorse copy scanner fax machine dies on us. Now, fortunately for us, we lease that machine and we have the bestest uh, gentleman ever who uh, who is our contact person who leases the machines to us because we work with local teams whenever we can. And he comes right over and gets it fixed, but it needs a new part. So it's it's down for the count for a while, and we're not going to be able to use it. However, I'm smart, and I've got a backup machine in here. And so um, we still have a smaller machine that we can scan and copy and fax. Um, so anyway, that's what our last week has been like. It's been crazy-making. Uh, will we be making some decisions about how we move forward? Of course. However, <laughs> we will be making them um, with cost in mind and also with the fact that I'm a little reluctant to make any big, big moves right now. Uh, we've just been through so, so much. So anyhow, practicing the pause being patient with everything that's going on. And we just really need to um, give ourselves a break, right? I mean, these things are going to happen. It's just kind of tough being in a a small business sometimes day to day. So um, anyway, with that in mind, it goes hand in hand with being the parent of a disabled child sometimes. Our lives are up and down And one of the most amazing things that I learned from being Elizabeth's mom, from being Caroline's mom, was flexibility and how to roll with the punches. So that has been just the biggest gift that I've gotten from them and from this life, 
So I love it. I had the pleasure of interviewing a few weeks ago, Dr. Marsha Nathai Balkasun. And she goes by Marsha NB because she says that people have such a hard time pronouncing her last name. And I get that. Um, it was really wonderful speaking with her. She uh, She's had such a, an amazing and challenging journey with her daughter. Um, she wrote a book that was released on June 1st called Lighting the Path. And she has these really great YouTube channel videos, uh, interviews that she does that she calls the change makers. And they were really, really powerful. I would suggest checking them out for sure. Uh, she is somebody who um, started her her adult life, her career as a PhD industrial engineer. That's what she get has her doctorate in. And she's a problem solver. You know, she is somebody who is, um, she's from the country of Trinidad and Tobago. And she um, really speaks to my spirit of resilience uh, she, In fact, she ends her book with a chapter on resilience. It's so powerful. And she, she, her book also speaks to me because every chapter has a checklist. <laughs> and I love checklists. Um, so I encourage you to check out her book. And I hope that you enjoy this interview as much as I did. I really, really loved meeting her. She has a fighting spirit and she has taken what she has learned from being this beautiful mother of this wonderful daughter and has taken that to give to other families. She's taking this this vision of her life and sharing it with others and helping them become the best parent and the best advocate that they can be. She's a parent skills master trainer um, that uh, is um, trained by the World uh, Health Organization, WHO, and Autism Speaks, and uh, so much more. So um, we will have all of her contact information in the show notes. And um, I hope that you enjoy this interview. So here we go. Welcome back, podcast fans. I'm your host, Annette Hines, and this is Parenting Impossible, the special needs survival podcast. And I am back today with a fellow survivor parent who I am really excited to talk to today. She is so much like me, even though she lives in a really, um, you know, a very far different part of the world than I do, but she's had a pretty similar journey to mine. And when I read her book, I was so moved and so motivated to talk with her. And I am very excited to introduce you today to Dr. Marsha Nathai Balkasun. I know that's a mouthful. So she goes by Marsha NB. So Marsha, welcome today. Thank you so much for coming on our show. 
Annette, thank you for the invitation. I feel so privileged I did not know you were a special needs parent. I thought you were a special needs lawyer. So to discover that just makes me feel really happy. Well, I was really excited to talk to you after flipping through your book. And I just want to mention a couple of things about the book first. And then I want to, you know, have you talk to us a little bit about your journey. And then I'm going to flip back and forth to, you know, some of the things in the book as we go forward. But first of all, you are so freaking impressive. She is a doctor of industrial engineering, a PhD I, I kid you not. And that means that she basically is like the primo problem solver, you know, <laughs> on the planet. And, you know, moms in general are problem solvers anyway. But Marsha has taken what she's learned um, in her professional life and turned it to, you know, the issues that we face as special needs parents. And I just love how she's applied that to her, you know, writing this book and to being able to share all of this knowledge with all of us. And one of the things that I thought was so clever in the book was every chapter has a checklist. So I am a huge checklist fan. Uh-huh. <laughs> I'm, like, I'm like a checklist geek. And um, I thought that was incredibly clever. So I'm going to ask you, you know, when we really get into talking about the book where you got the idea to do that, because that was really cool. Um, So that was one of the things that I really loved about the book. And the other thing that I wanted to mention was that Marsha has a really cool YouTube channel where she does all of these really great interviews with some pretty inspiring people that she calls change makers. So I think that besides reading Marsha's book, you should really check out her YouTube channel. And I'm going to have all of the connections and contacts um, listed out in our show notes. But if you even have a couple of minutes to listen to what some of these folks are doing in their lives, man, oh man, you're going to get tired and exhausted just (laughs) just tuning in and hearing what these people have to say and what is going on with them. But one of the things that I've tried to do with our show here in Parenting Impossible is to highlight some exceptional people and, you know, folks that are parents or professionals or parents who are professionals who have gotten some kind of an idea about how to you know, make a difference and bring this, you know, idea forward in our, in our disability community. And Marsha's done just that. But not only has she used her own idea, but she's also highlighting other people's ideas. And I just love that. So now, Marsha, can you just, you know, tell us a little bit about your family and about your parenting journey, please? Okay. My family, my, I got married 22 years ago to Sean, and Sean is a biology teacher. Um, he, we always had a very strong connection. He's a very, very heart-centered, simple guy, mm-hmm. and he sacrifices a lot for the people that he loves. He will, we'll go to his mom's house, and when we walk in, he picks up a broom and he helps her to sweep a house. Oh my God. Um, that's the illustration of how caring. Nobody likes doing those things, but he will look at the need his mom has 
and he'll figure out how he can help her. And that's what I've seen after Emmy got hurt. You know, I started to see so many marriages that broke up. Yes. And, um, and that's, that's normal. And it doesn't mean that anybody's a bad person, but it does mean that there's a lot of strain on the two individuals. And sometimes that exacerbates all the little sticking points between the couple and leads to a breakdown of the marriage. Um, And strangely, this actually brought our family closer. And I guess we'll talk about that later on, but we had a shared goal and that was Emmy's survival and our family's survival. So uh, uh, we have a, a son who is 14 now. He was five years old when Em got brain injured. And Em is now nine. She wow. was brain injured when she was eight months old. She had open heart surgery. And the surgery was successful. But after the surgery, um, they were taking the tube out that connected her to her respirator because she was breathing really well. Mm-hmm. And somehow, I, I really don't understand how, but somehow when they were taking the tube out, they also dislodged the tube that was draining her heart. Mm. And she bled out and she flatlined and she, um, her heart stopped for 20 minutes. Typically brain injury happens after about three minutes of loss of oxygen. So after 20 minutes, she was severely brain injured. And this was in, um, can you tell everybody where you're from? So we are from Trinidad and Tobago, but we didn't have the capacity here to do that surgery. So we actually, when she became cyanotic, which means she had started turning blue because her heart couldn't get enough blood, oxygen-rich blood to her body. Mm -hmm. They told us we had to rush and get her away to do surgery. We went to the United States Mm -hmm. um, to a hospital that had done thousands and thousands of these surgeries. This was routine stuff. And... um, Honestly, nobody in their wildest dreams could have predicted that this mis- mistake would have happened. Yeah. Um, it just did. And after it happens, crying about it, getting angry about it doesn't change the fact. Right. So luckily, I didn't even think much about that, nor did Sean, because when you have a child who's flatlining and who you're trying to save, all of your attention and energy needs to go into that child. Right. And that's what we focused on. So we stayed there after Emmy was brain injured. I think 20 minutes after they had cracked her chest, tried to resuscitate her heart with their hand massage on her heart. Heart wouldn't start again. Uh, Eventually, I don't know if you believe it, but this is what we really did. Not knowing where else to turn, we prayed. Mm. And we said, you know, God, please send Emmy back. We don't know what else to do. And the heart machine started going beep, beep, beep again. So that's our miracle. Emmy is our miracle. And um, we decided no matter what people told us, we decided that we were fighting. Um, Even if she wasn't coming back to us in the form we thought we wanted, we just had to take Emmy in whatever form because she was just our joy. Right. Um, So we set about learning as much as we could. We asked them to put us in rehab. We didn't know when we came back here to Trinidad what standard of care we would get, how much training there would be, if there would be therapeutic services that we could access, whether governmentally or, you know, privately. Yeah. Um, Yeah. 
reading about that was interesting in your book. Yeah. So we um, asked to go into their rehab facility and they agreed to let us go for one week. They had never taken a little child there, but we found a wonderful occupational therapist had come just to see Em after she had been hurt. I guess she was just that heart-centered that she wandered into Em's ICU. Mm-hmm. She said, you know, Em needs occupational therapy. Would you mind if I come by every day? And she mm-hmm. would come and she would show us how to stroke Em to try to make her able to bear pain, to bear the pain of being touched and to move her from feeling pain into feeling joy when touched. Wow. Um, so she advocated for us and got the rehab center to take us for one week. Wow. They said, they said one week and come Friday, these people have to leave. And on Friday, Emmy turned her head, I think, to the CD player that we had on, hoping that her hearing would come back because she had lost all her senses. Mm. So she couldn't see, she couldn't hear, she couldn't vocalize. We would see tears coming down. And we would hear nothing, even though her mouth was open and she was screaming. Mm. Um, so she did one little thing on Friday. Can't remember what, because you also go through this period in a numb days. Yes, I remember those the, those numb days. I do. Yeah. So I have I have like big memories of overall the outcome was, but I can't honestly tell you which came first, which came second in all cases. So, um, so she did something on that Friday and because of that, they got excited because they had told us, they didn't think, think Emmy could come back. Um, and then they decided, let's give you one more week. So we took week two and on the Friday of week two, she did something else. And they said, oh, we're very excited. So let's yeah. give you one more week. And, and it, I think we stayed there for three weeks. Mm-hmm. Um, and we were just ravenous to take every piece of, you know, training we could get. So right. she had speech therapy, occupational therapy, and physical therapy. We would go into this session with the therapist and we'd say, you know, we don't want to just look. Could you let us be the ones doing it? Could you show us? So the therapist would do a piece and then maybe we would muscle in. I can't remember, but basically we'd say, you know, take a back seat because I need to be skilled by the time I leave here. And they would walk us through what to do and what to look for and so on. Uh, My husband and my son had to leave me. Emmy and I went one week early. My husband had to get permission from his employer to come. So he had to wait until he got permission or he would have abandoned his job and lost it. Um, So he came one week after and then he had to leave a week early. When school, the school term started again, he had to be here to sign in or again, same problem would have happened. So I was there alone with her the last week of therapy. And then I came across um, with her Traveling with Em was was really hard because she had the inner ability to hold up her neck and her torso. She still has that problem. So she's hypertonic um, in arms and legs and extremities. Yeah. Really, really tight muscles, hyperextended, um, tight and unable to move them. And 
hypotonic, which means really floppy in neck and torso. And that means that we can't use medication to deal with it because she has the two extremes. Right. Um, but joyful things, you know, you, you learn over the years that developmental stages are things for neuronormative people. Right. Um, and that doesn't mean that our child is a failure with less. Yes, you learn to um, measure success very differently for our kids in micro ways. Mm-hmm. So, but that what was a big to be a successful person. It looks so different for us. Yeah, that's true. Um, I didn't understand that in the beginning. Right. I'm. A, I I come from. I come from generations of people who realized that education was the only way out of poverty. Right. Um, my, my forefathers in the 1850s came here to Trinidad from India on, on a ship as indentured laborers for plantations run by the colonials. And therefore, we're talking about huge families living in a small barracks, packed into the barracks, and not having very many resources, you know, cooking outside on a fire, squatting. Wow. Um, and my mother's generation, they, they grew up poor. She would basically, um, she'd, she'd have one dress, likely no shoes to go to school. And she would go and cut grass to feed the cow and water the cow and so on before school. And then walk, I don't know, a mile to school. And we have versions of that in all of our cultures, right? Right. So I listen to those stories and I'm like, what made the difference is that she went to school. Her big sister didn't. Mm-hmm. Um, and there were sisters who they wanted to pull out of school to get them married at age 11. Wow. Right? So, and it's her brother who was a schoolmaster the principal, he became that. And he said to his mom, listen, different model for our girls. That was huge. What man thought that way? I don't know, not then. So he and his mother conspired to get his sisters educated. And every one of those girls went on to become teachers. One and they in turn the things, right? One of the few yeah, things that they could that do. That they could do it was nursing, it was teaching, and a couple other things. And they in turn said to their children, you need to take one more step up. Sure. So I grew up, um, I had my son, and I was thinking, okay, let me let me study these developmental stages. What to expect when you're expecting was my Bible. Right. <laughs> yes. And I listened off, you know, this is this month of pregnancy. What's it developing? What's the thing that's happening with Brian now in my tummy, etc. And then he was born and I studied the six years of development by, by age six. The main competencies <laughs> I established and I knew every few months what the next development stage should be. I had charts on my wall going at, but at, etc., etc. And now I had a brain injured child who couldn't see, couldn't hear, couldn't speak. Right. Couldn't even come close to the first developmental stage. So you heard this huge loss and 
you can't tell me that you didn't take that as a loss to you. It was a huge loss because I congratulated myself for helping my child move through developmental stages. Of course, of course. Um, and so I, I cried. I cried for what we had lost. I was crying because I had lost my dreams for my child and for my family. Right. I know. I mean, I suffered the same. So at that point, what, what changed for you? Because you shifted very quickly. I mean, having read your book, I know that you shifted very quickly into, into third gear. So what changed for you? I think there were two things that were going on. One is, and I've seen this in anybody with a challenge. This is not a special needs challenge thing. If you are diagnosed with cancer or diabetes or whatever, whatever your life challenge is, you put one foot in front of the next and you deal with what comes your way. Well, Marsha, that's not true of everybody. You are okay. exceptional because some people buckle underneath the weight of the challenges that they face. And that is not to say that, you know, there's any judgment there because everybody walks their own path in their own way, but you mm -hmm. are exceptional in what you have done. And I want you to please congratulate yourself and acknowledge what you have accomplished. Okay. It is okay to thank to, to be thankful and grateful for the gifts that you've been given and also for what you have been able to get done and what you are doing every day. So you are more than, you know, the typical person and what you have done. And I want to talk about that. And I want to celebrate you for that. Okay. Okay. Annette, thank you for helping me to face that. It's a reframe. I have just said, you know, Marsh, this is par for the course and you had no choice. Um, so thanks for telling me, pause and, and see it differently. Yes, your, so your book is beautiful and lovely, wonderful, et cetera, and so helpful for other people. Um, and not everybody can do that. You know, not everybody takes the challenge, faces the challenge, you know, rises above the challenge for their own family and then turns that into this beautiful thing for their community and for others. And I want to know where that moment was for you to not only rise up to your own challenge, but then to move mm. beyond that challenge for if, everybody else. I think it started because I had Brian. Brian was five years old. Emma had been brain injured. Sean and I were in an ICU with my son and with my daughter. Mm -hmm. Emma was on all these tubes keeping her alive. And I felt that I had to put a happy face on to keep Brian going. I had to pretend that things were okay and manageable because I didn't want to take that darkness and swamp Brian with it. A five-year-old doesn't yeah. deserve that. Yeah, yeah. I get that. Yes. Um, so, so that was, I think, the beginning of thinking about the community before the self. Right. Um, and that wasn't entirely healthy, right? 
I have to say that I subjugated all of my own feelings because there were immediate other things that I had to say about. Right, right. And that came home and I had to deal with the emotions and so on. And that eventually caught up with me and I had to cry it out and really work through those things. Um, And in the working through those things, and I did that by opening up my computer and writing I had to let all the tension come out and they came out through my fingers. Mm-hmm. Um, really just letting all the negative feelings, all the doubt, all the fear, all the hurt, all the anger, all the blame, everything out. Um, all the feelings of abandonment. And at the same time, I was you know, running every day, you know this, with, with a child who is so yeah. special needs, your schedule, because I had to hold on to a job and do this second thing that people consider a full-time thing, which is care for, for my, my daughter. And um, so I shifted to evening and night work. I would take Emmy to therapy. I would do everything I had for, to do for Em. Sean would come home after his secondary school teaching job. He'd get in, he'd drive in, the yard at 3 p.m. By quarter past three, I was in the car and I was driving the hour to work and my teaching began at five at the university. Hmm. And I would teach till eight, do whatever, answer questions, meet students, et cetera. And by nine, I'd be out of the university and I'd be back home at 10. Then I'd do research and write my papers and and prepare my, my classes at two, three in the morning after Em was sleeping, Brian was sleeping. Right, right. But you you do what you have to do, right? Because the bills have to get paid, so you need this job. And plus, the job was my sanity. My job was my break from the chaos that was my home. Yes. I would drive to work distinctly happy. I would put on an audio book. <laughs> and I would immerse myself in a different world. Yes. Yes. And when it was traffic, I would say, oh, yes, traffic. I get more time. (laughs) Right. Um, Strange, because nobody likes traffic, except when it's your escape. Yeah. Um, So so that's that's part of that community thing. The other thing that led me into seeing the community and wanting to make a difference was that I was taking Emmy to therapy visits, to hospital clinic visits, and so on. And when I went into those settings, I would see so many special needs children. And when I, people would look at them, she's more hurt than most. And so they would look at them and eventually somebody would come over and say, what's wrong with your child? Mm. And I know a lot of people who would not want to talk about it, but I felt like I needed to acknowledge them. I didn't want, I was surrounded by, by people there were people in my family who referred to Emma as your daughter, not by her name. Wow. There, were, there were people who stopped coming to visit us because mm-hmm. they didn't like the imperfection of what we had. Is, um, that, uh, is that a cultural thing? I don't um, think so. I don't think so. Um, yeah. I mean, I... I, I I definitely experienced that too. And I certainly didn't feel like it was cultural to me. I'm just wondering if you felt like it was cultural to you. I did not feel that it was cultural. I was very shocked by it when it did happen because I grew up in a very, very tight knit family. 
very, very tight-knit extended family. Growing up every, every uh, August holiday from school, our extended family would rent a huge beach house. And six, seven aunts and uncles and their entire families mm-hmm. would all gather in that one beach house and spend a week together. Wow. We grew up like sisters and brothers. Mm-hmm. Um, it was really, really close. So I expected to have this, <laughs> this whole community banding around me to help me through what was definitely something that was not normal and traumatic. Right. Um, that didn't ever happen. Um, there was Nobody one aunt who showed else? up. Sorry? Nobody else in your family had anybody, ha- had any children with any disabilities or any issues at all? No, I had an uncle who, I think he had polio as a child. And because he had polio as a child, he ended up having problems with scoliosis and problems with his ability to walk and so on. So the book is actually dedicated to him because he was the first special needs person that I had ever known. And only when I was writing the book did I realize, hmm, Uncle Frank was special needs, Marsh. You actually knew a special needs person. Oh. And he, he was my second father. We were that close. Okay. I spent a lot of time with him. When we went to visit him, he would call to my father. My father was his brother-in-law. But he would say, Harold, come cut my nails for me. Mm. Not a usual thing to ask a, a brother-in-law to do, but my father would soak his feet and massage his feet and cut his nails. And as I grew up, daddy started to call me and say, Marsh, come help Uncle Frank. And he taught me how to care for Uncle Frank. Wow. But I somehow never made the connection that Uncle Frank was special needs. Isn't that interesting? And that's because of how Uncle Frank carried himself. He was independent. He he had to use his hand to lift his leg to put it forward and drag the other one and keep going. But I grew up always seeing that. And so that was just him. And I didn't see him as different. Um. So the book enlightened me hugely when I started to realize, hey, Uncle Frank was really significantly special needs. um, And he was that strong. So I'm going to the hospital now and I'm seeing all of these parents and they are asking me what's up with them. And I'm telling them. And then I would say, so tell me about your child. Right. You know, and There was one lady, I had this, I asked her, so what's wrong with your daughter? And no, what's wrong with your son? And she said to me, these were the words, the doctor said he has heart. Isn't that strange? And the translation out of the dialect is, the doctor said he has a heart problem. Mm. This child was 18 years old. And the parent had had a child who was hurt since the child was a baby. 18 years had passed and the parents still only knew that the child had heart. Wow. This parent was not confident enough in herself to ask the doctor to say more. When she tried to talk about it, she'd be 
hushed and she'd be given whatever message from the doctor and then she'd be ushered out of the room. And she allowed that to happen for years. Okay, we have to talk about that some more because that was the impetus for you to go forward and start becoming an advocate, not just it for your was, own child. But I started to educate these people and say, no, yeah. you need to ask questions. You need to go find information. You don't have to be highly educated in order to learn a little bit about your child, but they didn't know that. So you became a, a parent master master skill skills master trainer. I knew right. I was going to get that wrong. <laughs> Um, through the World Health Organization, right? And, and Autism Speaks. And Autism Speaks. So what does that entail? Because that was fascinating to me. And um, that must have been so much fun and so interesting. And um, it, I can't even imagine how cool that is and how many awesome people you must have met in your travels doing that. So that that came to me. I didn't seek it out. I was going to a developmental pediatrician with them. Mm -hmm. We have those appointments with her either once or twice a year. And every time I went, I would ask so many questions. Mm -hmm. And I would tell the developmental pediat pediatrician, here are the therapies I've built for M. Here are the videos showing you the changes we've gotten, the response. Yeah. Because a lot of the time, Emmy would not respond and not show people that she had the skills she had because she, she didn't feel comfortable with them. So she right. would lock up. And then she'd come home and she'd do them fine. Of course she's going to do them at home because she's comfortable at home. Yes. And she's in her own environment with her own things. Yes, absolutely. Sometimes we would doubt, are we imagining that Emma's doing this? So we had to capture it on, on video so we could watch it again, so we could celebrate it again, so we could say, hmm, if she did this once, we could work on it and make it a habit. And not only the good things, but also sometimes they do the bad things at home too. And then, you know, the doctors kind of look at you like, that mother's making that up or, yeah. she's, you know, she's just always nervous and worried about things like that happened to me with seizures when my daughter was having seizures and, the, and then they would doubt me oh you know we've never seen those at school or we've never seen those here in the clinic or whatever and I'm like she's definitely having them and until I was able to videotape them nobody would believe it exactly and I didn't I didn't realize you know for for, for some years there but glad I, I Gladly, I just happened to take a video once and say, let me show you what, and, and the, the therapist said, I can't believe it. I, I kept saying that you weren't, you, you, you were making it up. So I started to record these things and show it to the developmental pediatrician. And the developmental pediatrician would say, you know, show me, show me this equipment that you made that holds Emma in a harness and helps her to, to, to crawl. Because I took a walker, made a harness, put it on the walker, put wheels on the bottom of the walker, and Emmy would go into a crawl position and drag herself. There and you go. And she became able to Dr. move. Dr. Marsha, industrial engineer. So awesome. Solving problems. I love it. And the thing, the thing that happened then is she started to say to me, hmm, Marsha, 
you know, I'd like you to come to my clinic. I'm thinking of other services I want to give to my people in my clinic in the hospital, which I was not part of. But would you come and maybe do this for me? Talk to other parents. And I said, sure, let's start talking about it. A couple of years passed. It didn't really come to pass. Um, and then one day I got a call. It might have been on a Tuesday. And she said, listen, tomorrow we're having a group of people come to do training for parent skills development. And I know how many ideas you have and how interested you are. Would you be interested? So this was like this evening for tomorrow. And I said, I'll, I'll be there. Wow. So I went to the training. I wasn't supposed to be, I was supposed to just get the, 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 the slides training basically. Yeah. Because as a parent, I wasn't considered the one to train. They were going to train the therapists and so on to become yeah. the master trainer. Turns out that somebody didn't show up. And when they started to do the, the um, hands-on session where they took a small group and actually built the skills with them, they had an empty slot. Wow. And I remember saying to, to the doctor, listen, um, if you need me to do whatever to help, I am happy to help. And she said, you just hold on right there. And next thing I knew, I was in the group being trained. I have no idea how it happened, but I was only too happy. So I went in there. And that I was a divine intervention. It was. It was meant It really to be. was. It really was. So I actually ended up being trained as a parent skills master trainer together with one of Emmy's therapists. That's amazing. So that was really a defining moment for you, a turning point, because you went from just doing for you and your family to really becoming the person who can spread that out and do for everybody else too. Yeah. So the aim there was to build a community of people who would become master trainers mm -hmm. and who would then train trainers in whatever community throughout our country. Right. And then those people would go on to go into people's houses and help them to adapt their everyday interactions with their children to teach them skills that would develop their children in very pointed ways without giving them more tasks to do. You just change the way the task is created yes. so that they build skills in their everyday life. Because nobody needs another long list of things. God no. knows. Oh man, that was one so, of the that I just used to hate about having somebody come into the house, like the early intervention people or right. you know, at the therapist and they would leave you with this long list of things <laughs> that you needed to do. And you're wondering, how do I fit this thing in, right? I don't even have time to go to the bathroom, I used to think, you know, like I can't even, I'm lucky if I get a shower every other day, never mind trying to get this list of things done. So, yeah. And that's what we had started to do. This is where it would resonate with you. I actually had a spreadsheet drawn up and the spreadsheet was my tasks to do. And then I had a grid next to it for, for each day of the week. And so if it was three times I had to do task one. So it was three each day, three grids each day. And I was going through task one, tick, task two, tick. I love it. 
Mm-hmm. I had this great at the end of the day and at the end of the week to say I miss some, but here's basically a snapshot of what we did with them. Singing in my song. <laughs> <laughs> and after time, we would correlate, you know, um, doing light stroking of M for light pressure. Mm-hmm. Um, for, for helping surface nerves. And I'm doing deep pressure massage, which is much deeper squeezing. How many times? And now I'm finding that when I touch Emmy's face, she smiles instead of screams. It's not hurting her. Mm. You know, so you could see correlation in the, in the abilities that she had to the input that we did. That's amazing. That's so wonderful. I noticed in your book that you wrote a chapter about the siblings, the other kids. And I wrote a chapter in my book about that too, because I think it's so important that we remember that every person in the family is important and needs to be cared for. And especially the other kids can get forgotten sometimes. What inspired you to write that chapter Mm -hmm. and be thinking about your son? Um. I, there's a big bit, a big piece of guilt there. Yeah. Um, I, I have cried quite a lot for what I see as my shortcomings in my care of Bri. Mm-hmm. Bri has never once said I fell short. Right. But I know the standard of care I used to have, the, the, the quality time I used to spend with Bri until this happened with them. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure that Bri felt the loss of that. Because you go from spending time with him as the only child, and then Emmy is born with her four heart problems, and then all of the other things happen. Right. So maybe I was worried that I would have this other, other child and he, we would go from 50% to, to 50% of time. He had 100% of mommy's time. Right. Now he'd have, have 50% of mommy's time. And that would be hard. We see that in regular families all the time. Sure, yeah. But in this case, we moved from 100% of time to he gets 5% of time. And it became that the 5% of time would be transactional, largely transactional in the beginning. Yeah. Time to eat, Bri, come sit down, let's do it quickly. Come on, son, let's get bath, let's get changed, let's go to school, let's, 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 lists. Right. And I lived in a lot of transaction because transaction is how we get through our day efficiently when we have too much on our plate. And not to mention the fact that emotionally we're very shut down when we're in that trauma space too. So even that... Yeah transactional moment you don't have a lot of love to give and a lot of emotion and connection because you're I found that when when I opened myself up to emotion the floodgates would basically open and I'd be swamped by too much emotion yeah um and I'd end up crying I'd cry because I had I told you what my background is so I came from a home that didn't have too much extra resources. So traveling anywhere on a vacation wasn't an option. I didn't travel the world with my parents, but now I was an engineer and I was making decent money and I was expecting that I could take my child once a year on a trip. Mm. 
right? I dreamed of, you know, taking him to the States, taking him to, to Europe, taking him to wherever and letting him see the world because that's a whole different kind of education, right? Right. And that's one of the things I cried for when M got hurt. I cried because the kind of growth and exposure that I dreamed of giving my son, it just, it went up in smoke. Mm. Um, I cried because I couldn't see myself affording a university education for him. And we all know how much I love this education. Oh my God. Um, Because all I was trying to do was make enough to take Emmy to the doctors to buy the medication to be able as she grew to add to, to, to add more equipment because she was outgrowing things and had they had to be replaced and everything was being charged in US dollars. I had to buy them on on, on Amazon and ship them down. And oh we buy God. and multiply by seven to get things here. Mm-hmm. And and the it just was really a, 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 a really, really overwhelming thing to think into the future. You can't get things in your country. You can't. A lot of special them. needs things. You won't get them here. They would be bought in the States and they would be brought down to be resold to you at a higher price. Wow. Um, and as you, I think, would know, most special needs sellers in the States charge a very high price for, for sure. those pieces of equipment because they know people people's backs are up against the wall and they have to buy it. They'll pay anything, anything. Oh, this might help my child, this little toy that, you know, should be $5. You know, you call it a special needs toy, $25. Yeah. So, for example, I've been wanting to get a, um, a wheelchair fan. Because I'm as nine now, and when I hold her on my shoulder, her feet kick the lower part of my um, shins. She's mm-hmm. really big. And, um, and that's a blessing because lots of children like Em are underweight, but Em is normal weight. Because mm. um, we spend a lot of time on nutrition and, and, and that sort of thing. But to get that, I, I did go locally to get wheelchairs. Mm-hmm. We don't have any any adapted wheelchairs for children who can't hold their torso and their neck up. Mm-hmm. If you give me a regular wheelchair, she'll be a puddle in the wheelchair and she's begun to get positional scoliosis already because she can't yeah. hold herself up. So I have to buy a very fancy one. I tried getting a catalog and design choosing it myself. Couldn't do it. I need to actually take Emmy to the States find a company, fit her, right. try it out for a few days, make sure it's okay and come back. But COVID has happened for the last year and a half. Wow. And so I haven't been able to come out of Trinidad because we have closed our borders since March of last year. Marsha, I can't even fathom, you know, I forget, I forget how amazingly lucky we are here in the U.S. Even as somebody who... <laughs> I mean, my daughter's been gone seven years, so um, I'm out of it, but I'm not out of it because I've also, I'm also a guardian, so I take care of people with disabilities still. 
but I, I forget how hard it is around the world, you know, and thank you for reminding me how blessed we still are as hard as our lives are. It's harder still in other places. And I'm sorry how difficult things can be for you. Thank you, Annette. I, you know, it should not be, it should not be like that to get basic necessities of life and basic healthcare needs. I just and, and that's the difference because your standard, you see these things as basic. These are, things are not our due here. These things are seen as way outside of what, what is our due here. It's appalling, appalling. So I'm going to talk with you afterwards to see what I can do to help. Um, so we'll, we'll talk offline about that. Um, but um, I want to, because of course we're running out of time. I hate that. <laughs> I could talk to you for hours, Marsha. You're so amazing. Um, but I wanted to just ask you two other things before I really do run out of time here. You called your book Lighting the Path, and I wanted to ask you about the name for that. And also your last chapter, you ended with a chapter on resilience, which I found so powerful. So tell me why you decided to end your book in that way. And okay. also, you know, where, where you came up with the name. The two things are actually, they're rooted in the same reason. I thought so, which is why yeah. I put them together. When this whole event happened to him for, for years, for years, I felt that I was just in darkness. I was in darkness. I saw only what my child had lost. I saw no hope for her and no hope for us. I had given up on everything that I thought that... Like you're, you're taught, if you go to church, if you work really hard in school, if you're a good person, you're going to have a good life. That's like the, the mental model I had. Right. And, and I did those things. If I was checking a box, you know, we talk about checklists. I was checking those Absolutely. boxes. Absolutely. I had that same experience too. And, and when my child was born disabled, 29-week, two-pound preemie, after doing the same thing. I went to school. I got married. I had my babies after I got married. Why did this happen to me? Yeah. And I worked really hard in my jobs and I did good service for my bosses and I didn't cut corners. You know, I sacrificed my things so that I could do good work for other people. Right. So how could, you know, why? Um, and then more than that, I was seeing my my husband, who I see as so much nicer than I am, <laughs> um, so much more gentle and selfless, you know, and generous. I I saw him begin to age in front of my eyes. Yeah, I saw him begin to waste away. I saw him actually start to get shorter. Oh, and, and the, pain, the pain of watching somebody else hurt and that. Oh decimated me emotionally this this emotional journey I think is even harder than anything else mm -hmm. um and 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 it felt like and and I actually have an a, a, a 
a visualization of what it was. Because I see it as walking through the valley. I suddenly was put in this dark valley that was full of treacherous things. And I've now come to realize that if I didn't walk through that valley, Annette, and if I didn't get very, very familiar with every part of the terrain of that valley and how to navigate it and slowly make my way out of the valley, I wouldn't be able to help anybody else. Mm. That's so profound. I'm tearing up. I'm sorry. Um, I'm having a real emotional moment here. <laughs> but I, I really, uh, I very much um, appreciate what you're saying. And I really identify with it. Um, I think only through these kinds of life experiences that I call a blessing, can we you know, share with other people, which I call grace, you know, these, these moments of grace of being able to share the journey Mm -hmm. and life experiences with others. It's, it's through this extension of community that it makes life worth living. Yeah, it really does. And, and, and in that we see, I mean, if, I know that, you know, it's different for everybody, but for me in that experience, I, I see God, you know, um, and that is my purpose. So otherwise I'm not sure what, what it was all for. I've asked myself that. Yeah. Why is this happening? And and, and, and I refrain from, you know, painting with a broad brush and saying, this is it. But for me, this is it. You know, I, I think we all have to come to our own understanding and form, create our own meaning out of what we're going through, especially as parents. But the big learning for me was one morning I woke up and I heard Emma's voice ringing through the house. She was laughing at the top of her lungs. Mm. Um, my husband sleeps with her because I can't lift her well. So he sleeps with her and I sleep in the room next door. And um, she was just laughing. And I woke up and I was in pain that morning. Um, I have a lot of back pain I've had, you know. And all of a sudden I realized, hmm, I'm feeling overwhelmed. I'm like, can I do this yet another day? Because you, the first thing you do when you, well, first thing I do when I wake up is I think about the list I've made for the things yes. to do today. Yeah. And that list is usually far too long. I'll yeah. never finish, even if I work without a break. So I feel overwhelmed the very first minute of the day. But there's Emmy's voice coming through. And Emmy is saying, Mom, I've lost everything. You haven't lost it. I've lost it. Mm. Yet you are the one mourning it constantly. You are the one who has no hope. You are the one feeling no drive. You are the one feeling self-doubt, self-blame, resentment toward people who you think have abandoned you, loneliness. The list was long. But M didn't feel any of those things. Right. 
All M was doing was opening her eyes in the morning and saying, thank you, Lord, for another day. What a blessing it is. Can't wait to squeeze every drop of joy out of this day and give as much joy as I can too. And suddenly I began to understand that just because M looks and behaves and experiences life differently from me doesn't mean that her experience is lesser than mine. Right. And this child has never lost focus on her purpose. She's very clear on her life purpose. Mm. I was the one who couldn't figure out my life purpose because I'd forgotten. When I was born, I'm sure I knew what it was, but life has made it not so clear. She never forgot what her life purpose was. Right. She's been living it to the max every minute because it's only love and joy. Right. And it took me many years to see that. But that's what has infected me. And it is her message that I feel I've translated into this book. Mm. And, and this book is a book to show us I'm acknowledging there's a lot of darkness, a lot of pain. I did that a lot in that book. Yeah. But even in the darkest chapters, which were the first three chapters, even in the darkest chapters, there was light. Yeah. Because we can't continue to live in that dark. We didn't come here to live in dark. We came here to learn, to give service, and to love. At least that's what I think. Right. And that's why it's lighting the path. We might be walking a path. It might be your first time. Yeah. And it might feel really, really dreary, overwhelming, scary, lonely. But I want you to know that you're not walking that path alone. I say that many times in that book. Right. And even if you don't see the other people on the journey, there are other people on the journey, including me. Yes. And when we see other people's stories and we share store our stories, we get empowered and we empower others. That's right. And that's how life, light shines in. And it tells us, I can dare, even if the circumstances stay the same, I can dare to reframe this because there's light. The only way we see shadow is if there's light. That's beautiful. And that is the perfect note to end this podcast on. I love it. And I loved your last chapter. I loved the chapter on resilience. And I'm not going to give away what's in it, but I think that this audience should pick your book up and should read it for themselves because it's a beautiful book. I love the checklist. And I loved, I loved your chapter on resilience. So, um, Marsha, I love hearing that. <laughs> you are a gem. And this was a great interview. Thank you so much for spending this time in the afternoon with me. I hope that we get to be friends and we get to meet someday. But I appreciate I so the time too. that I got to spend with you. So um, I will connect up with you about some of the things that we talked about today. But um, I'm going to have all of the show notes 
reflect uh, how you can connect with Marsha, I would really love for you guys to check out her book and also to take a look at her um, interviews that she has on her YouTube channel. They are really awesome. Some pretty amazing people that she's got up there. So um, I hope that my audience enjoyed this interview and meeting Marsha as much as I did. Thank you very much. Hey, everybody. Thanks for tuning in. I just wanted to take a second to say how much I appreciate you taking the time to listen to these podcasts. I'm having a blast doing them, and I hope that you're finding the content to be what you were really hoping. If you are, please take a second to leave a rating and a review. It's so helpful in getting this content out to people who really need to hear it. Thank you so much.